Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Coaches Corner University podcast. I am your host, Paul O'Need, and today I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Colin Masterson. Colin and I met about, I guess, over a month ago now in uh, Washington, D.C. at the Coaches Room Mastermind. And, you know, our stories matched up pretty closely. Colin, former Division I strength and conditioning coach at Villanova. Uh, myself, I started off at the University of South Florida, so our schools have battled a little bit back and forth. Um and I just, uh, I really love the energy that he brought and I'm excited to speak with him today, learn a, bit, a little bit more about what he does. So Colin, welcome to the podcast. Well, Paul, I appreciate having me on. Uh, we obviously just switched positions. I was just up in Canada in your hometown. I know Jamaica is technically potentially part of the U.S., so you're kind of part of the America there. So we're back in our home respective spots. I'm in Philadelphia by way of New York since I'm transitioning up to New York City as a full-time trainer, but glad to be on. Like you said, kind of, you know, same thing kind of matched. I actually saw you, which is interesting enough, at the Swiss conference. So yeah. about a month before that, I saw mm -hmm. you up on stage speaking, and I was like, man, this guy speaks very well. He's very clear, very concise about what he's talking about. And I was like, man, I would love to reach out to that guy. And I was actually a little bit intimidated to do so. You give off a little bit of intimidation look. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, fast forward, we go and meet in uh, in D.C. with Cavs Group. And, you know, the intimidation piece is definitely not matched. You're one of the nicest guys. You're very open. Um, I know even in that room that day where you spoke up and you were very firm at a certain point, you said it's like, that's not really who you are. It's just kind of the persona you give off at times. And I think I give off a similar persona coming from the performance world of like, I may be hard to approach at times. But once people approach me, they're like, actually a pretty nice guy. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't bite, you know? I feel like uh, that's so common. I hear that a lot. And I like to say like, listen, I'm, I'm the easiest guy in the world to talk to, but you have to actually like talk to me to get there. But I definitely feel like that was cultivated in the college world because in that weight room, you're dealing with just pure ego. Mm -hmm. That high performance mentality is, is something that I would, you know, I know we're going to get into today, but I'm wondering if you can start, like what, what got you into strength and conditioning? What got you into coaching? Yeah. Um, well, full circle. So I grew up playing sports, love sports, um, multi-sport athlete in high school was fortunate to play D3 football, loved it. And then, you know, went the normal route and was an accountant for five years and, from day one, as being an accountant, I knew I hated it. I wanted to get back into sports. So I went back to my high school and coached for a couple of years. And while I was doing it, they asked me to run the weight room. I was always passionate about the weight room. I was never a bigger, faster, or strong guy, but always kind of wanted that, you know, piece to be an edge in my game. So I really took a bunch of pride in it when I was in college, got a lot stronger. People saw that I put some size on. I put about like 65 pounds on in college. Also so came in very light. I was 155 pounds. It's not like I was a, a meat stick when I left there, but I put on a bunch of weight. Um, I put on some size. I felt really good. And I, I had a, a new confidence about myself. So I started working at the weight room there. And I just started Googling. I was like, you know, strength coaches and, you know, college sports. And they're like a million dollars. I'm like, oh, it's like a cool thing. I could make a million dollars being a strength coach. Why not go after this dream? Yeah. So I called my buddy who was, uh, he was an intern at the time. Or he was, he had just gotten a job. And he's like, don't do it. And I was like, fuck, you know, that's the last thing you want to hear. So I did it anyway. I went and interned down at the University of Maryland. Had an unbelievable staff I worked with. I was there for about nine or 10 months. Um, and then kind of climbed my way through the ranks at Villanova. I was a intern, paid intern, full-time, was there for five years. And then when I first got uh, introduced to CAV, 
uh, I was about to quit my job. I was in like the December timeframe when we kind of met. Um, and he was like, why don't you just fuck quit your job? And I was like, well, it's easier said than done. I had kind of a side hustle where I'd start my business. I was doing some training and I was like, I just don't like, I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing. I make enough money on the side. I make enough money in my salary position at Villanova. Why would I quit? And then guess for two months, I quit my job and then I was full time for myself. So, uh, my true passions are, you know, if we want to talk about it, it's like performance as a whole. Like I love the world of performance. It's not super sciencey. It's just like this term longevity is around, but like being fit for life is very important to me. I've always wanted to be fit for life. Um, and another piece of his business, I enjoy business a lot. So meshing the two together, I thought it was like, I don't want to work for somebody. I might as well work for myself. So I have a performance company, but the business background where I kind of like blend it all together. And this is kind of what makes myself up. Dude, I love it. I mean, it's uh, the fact that you have like you were in the private sector doing something completely different, realize that it's not the path for you. I think people have this almost this like misguided idea that the career they choose right out of college is going to be the one that's for them forever. And, you know, when I look back, I'm like, okay, I, I was a college strength coach. Then I was private sector insurance. Like I worked in insurance. Then I started my own business. Now I do multiple things within my own business. I've started other companies and it's like, this is probably my fourth or fifth thing that I'm on. Mm -hmm. And now I've found my true passion, my true calling. I, I, I also, respect the fact and, and know how hard of a decision it is to quit college sports. I don't know about you, but when I quit, I had a huge identity crisis. Mm -hmm. like, what am I doing? Yeah. Similar. I mean, I think it was the same thing when I got done playing because all I had done my whole life was like play sports. Like that got me through school. You know, I was did well in school, but that got me through school. And then same thing when I left Villanova, I think it was the piece of like, you think you are making a bigger impact than you actually are. I know I can kind of be phrased certain ways. Like I know we make a big impact as coaches, but at the same time you remove yourself, they put someone else new in there. They forget about you in two weeks. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, and I'm having a similar, you know, issue with it right now is I'm leaving a private sector job down in the Philadelphia area to move my business up to New York where there's more opportunity for me to really go and kind of like swim on my own. It's going to be a sink or swim thing here. So going to one of the biggest cities in the world where there's a lot of opportunity um, to gain, but you know, I'm starting out with basically zero in-person clients again. I do have an online presence, which is nice. That's going to help me, but I have zero online presence. I mean, I have zero in-person presence. Um, so I'm going to go up there. I'm going to make it work. Yeah. It's uh, any, I feel like anytime your back's against the wall, at least for me, I've been in a position to make some crazy, crazy growth. Um, and again, I think that comes down to the performance mindset and coming, coming up as an athlete, we have this almost like this innate drive when our backs against the wall, we fight. And when we're fighting and we're pushing and we're trying to, you know, achieve more, there's just this, like you said, it's not sciencey. There's an ass, like you can try and science performance if you want, but you look at a guy like Tom Brady, for example, guy's a mm -hmm. schmuck like he can't run fast he can't jump high he's got a crazy high iq but he just has something different yep how do you how do you kind of quantify that yeah it's interesting i think you gotta want it i think that's the biggest thing it comes down to is when i see 
I'm very observant when I kind of like drive around. I do a lot of driving, you know, from place to place. But even when I just drive and watch people in traffic in the day, I just like observe. And they're not people are not hungry. And like I, I sit in the car as I'm in the same time as I'm, like, I'm hungry. Like I'm getting to my next session or, you know, what's next. I'm very process oriented. Um, I'm not really worried about the outcome because I don't think the outcome is ever like what I'm after. So I'm trying to like separate what is the process from the outcome. I don't want to be like, I want to have, you know, make $30,000 a month. You know, the piece of that, that, that will come. Um, but in the, the day, like you just got to keep showing up, right. Keep doing things that you say you're going to do. That's going to help you get to where you want to be. And that's the same thing when it comes to performance. Like, like I said, when I went to college, I was 155 pounds and I started as quarterback. I was probably one of the smallest guys on the team, but I was a good quarterback. I was a good football player, but I knew I needed that edge of like getting in the weight room. So I didn't do anything special. I stayed we didn't have a great strength coach. He did a great job of showing up, but like I just did the program, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month. Like I said, before I knew it, I also probably hit puberty at that point, but like, you know, 65 pounds later, you know, I, I feel like I had some sort of like shit to me. I had some confidence to me. It just, it took a long time. And I get a lot of questions now. People are like, how can you go, you know, do something for a week and, and not strength train and still feel like you haven't lost them? Like, well, it's because I've been building it for 16 to 18 years. You know, yeah. it wasn't built overnight. So we built a big foundation. And that's my biggest thing. I'm, I'm very big on foundational training um, at every level. You know, the tip, the spear that a lot of people want to, look very sciencey and very much like they're creating you know this new sports performance thing out there it's like they're very 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 small percentage of people need that most people just need very quality foundational training and i've deemed this phrase that i probably stole from somebody but it's consistency over intensity for me mm -hmm. i did and, and we see it time and time again with with the high performers the line that i always love is like for most people they need a chainsaw very rarely do you need a scalpel to get the job done Right. 100%. You just want to attack, like you, you want to squat, press, pull, hinge. Mm -hmm. And at some now you're once you master those, now you can get into the nitty-gritty of you know, how are we introducing rotation and how are we introducing some dynamic movement to it, or you know, yielding strength and all that stuff absolutely comes in time. But unless you take care of the basics, that shit really doesn't matter. You used a few words in your description of you know, that drive, that it factor, you mentioned, you know, being process oriented. And it's something that as business owners, and this podcast is geared towards coaches and clients alike, but a lot of our viewers are coaches and people who are trying to learn from the best in the business, the people that have been where they want to go. And that hunger and that process orientation comes from an innate drive for something more, right? We can you mentioned accounting. I fucking hate accounting. I hate dealing with money. Great at making money. Hate dealing with it. But that I do it because it's a means to an end. I know that my mm -hmm. greater purpose is, you know, something more than what I'm doing right now. Um, what would you say is the the driving force behind what you're doing? Obviously, when you were in college athletics, it was you want to make an impact on the kids in front of you. What is it now? Yeah. So it's shifted a handful of times. And I think that's the beautiful piece of business. And when you work for yourself is the ability to pivot and kind of see the long game. So when I got out of this, you know, college sector, I was doing some things with um, some travel across teams, which, you know, my vision was always go after 
the audience. Don't go after the sole person. So instead of just going after and trying to get one client at a time, go after a team or a club of 300 kids and there'll be a trickle down effect of 10, mm-hmm. 15, 20 kids that want to work with you individually. It's just a very much an easier process. So that was kind of that. Um, so youth athletics is a big thing for me. I'm kind of, you know, grooming an internship program where um, people underneath me will be able to coach uh, youth athletics. And again, it comes down to the foundational training. It's nothing really fancy. And it's just making sure the kids are having a good time. They're enjoying themselves. They want to come back. But then I left Villanova because inside those four walls, you know, Villanova is a prestigious university where there's a lot of wealth around there. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I could serve more people than the 500 athletes that you know, play and build up a university athletics. So I went to serve the masses. So that's kind of shifted now to who are the next highest performers in the world. Obviously, most people like they're professional athletes. Well, I don't really have a, you know, give a shit to work with professional athletes. They don't pay you. Um, Obviously, it's great to work with them. It'd be an amazing, you know, ego hit for me and be like, oh, I work with professional athletes. And it's just never really checked the box for me. So I want to work with the highest professionals in the world. Yeah, I want to work with the highest professionals in the world, the ones that are like the big decision makers, so that I can learn business from them. At the same time, I can swap and teach them how, you know, my world performance. So it's really a give and a take here. Um, how can I learn from the best, but also give them the answers that they don't have time or give them the solutions they don't have time to go resolve themselves? So it seems to me like you're just very growth oriented, right? You're always trying to expand, whether it be your knowledge base or your skill set. You're just trying to to continue to move up the ladder. And I resonate with that big time. You know, I always say I'm trying to raise the bar and, and that for me is what drives me, whether it's raising mm-hmm. the bar for someone else, raising the bar for myself, raising it in my relationships, whatever that may be. I, I, I think a lot of people have this idea that, <laughs> that their work is in service of others exclusively. And this might seem selfish and, I mean, we can get into a whole conversation about why being selfish isn't a bad thing, but we have to remember that we're not martyrs. Like we are not sacrificing ourselves to the greater good. We have to enjoy what we're doing. And that Mm -hmm. you mentioned when you left Villanova, I've shared many times why I left college athletics. And I think our reasoning is very similar in that the values that I had as a coach were not echoed by the institution I was working with. I wanted to make an impact on these kids and help them win championships the same way you did at Villanova, but I didn't have an administration that, that supported those, those goals, right? In Canada, it's much different. The funding is much different. The the, the infrastructure is much different. And they wanted something from me that I was able to provide, but they didn't give me the systems to be able to provide it. And I ended up in a position where my values didn't align with the institution. And I decided to step away. Um, you know, we, you mentioned before the call, like your goals and the goals of the university didn't align. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah. So I worked with a handful of teams there. Funny enough, my first team was the, uh, the cheerleading team. So everyone's like, Oh, you probably work college football strength coach. Like, well, it's, Tone it down. It takes a little while to get up there. I did yep. work with football in my time there. I worked with lacrosse. I worked with golf. I worked with softball, baseball. You know, I worked with all the teams. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we did do was I was able to connect with a coach there who's a softball coach. And we won three straight conference championships, which is amazing, right? And it's like the universe is like, oh, you guys will get rings and you'll get gear and this and thing. And like, I don't want any of that shit. It doesn't matter to me. Oh. But I want it for the kids. And the kids want that shit because they want to show it off. And that shit never came through. But when men's basketball won 
a national championship or a conference championship, you better believe they had shit the next day. And I get it. They have more eyes on this than anything. But at the same time, like, it shouldn't matter. No. To me, it's about the kids. It's about showing them that they're champions. They deserve it. They put just as much work in, just as much effort in. So when we're trying to win championships for certain teams, you know, not every team gets the same amount of recruits. Not every team gets the same funding. Not every team has the same nutrition. And I get it. Use the most of your resources. But to me, when I'm out here putting time and effort in, I'm treating every team the same because I want them to win championships. And that's not respected at the higher level. Then we're not going to win fucking championships. We may have 4.0s. We may graduate complete student athletes. But at the end of the day, like when I went to college, I went to win. I didn't go to college to you know, get a 4.0 GPA. I knew within that network that I was building for myself amongst the, you know, students, amongst the other athletes, amongst the coaches that I would be fine in the real world because I'm a competitor there too. So I went mm-hmm. to instill that like competitive, you know, systems and frameworks inside these kids because I know that's what transfers more than their resume and their diploma when they hand it to their, you know, institution. But hey, are you going to hire me? And it's like, yeah, you're going to get a job. Is it a job you want? Probably not. Man, like hearing hearing that just kind of validates me to some extent because there's not many people who understand it. I remember, so when I graduated from South Florida, it was my second master's degree. I'd already been at Robert Morris uh, at South Florida and at the University of Tampa. And it was between staying in the US and going to work at Georgetown for 33,000 a year with two master's oh, yeah. degrees. Or mm-hmm. coming up to Canada and working for $55,000 a year. And ultimately, I chose Canada, not because of the money, because at the time, the currency exchange was about the same, but because okay. I was two hours away from my brother. And I was like, okay, I'll be close to Alex. He's having his first son. It'll be great. And then I get there and I'm like, this school doesn't give a shit about what I'm doing. And there are some very special people in this world who are college strength coaches and devote everything they have to the kids in front of them. And they are totally fine swallowing that shit sandwich. I'm not one of those people. You're clearly not one of those people. And now that I have my own business and it's my vision, I'm like over the moon motivated, so fired Mm -hmm. up. And I feel like my ability to impact the people in front of me has just exponentially gone up yeah we also worked it was also i mean it was a weird model and this is not an i mean i worked with great people i love the people i worked with we had a great time together but we were on the same scale so no matter how many teams you worked with how much effort you put in you all made the same amount of money so for me that rubbed me the wrong way i worked with four teams plus assisted football so i technically had five teams for however many years and i got paid the same amount as person had three teams which were not of the same varsity level which again it's not a knock on them that's just the cards that they were drawn right like yeah it's it what it was yeah. yeah so it's not it's not on them but but that bothered me and there was no incentive to win championships like hey we want to win championships great okay well when i win a championship should i get a bonus yeah there's no bonus right and i remember during covid and obviously covid was a weird time for everyone but they froze our retirement and i obviously come from a finance background and i was like that's interesting like they have a billion dollar endowment but whatever let's go freeze freeze it for us and then after COVID was done everyone's like oh they went back and they retro paid all the money so i ended up getting like i don't know seven hundred dollars which is great everyone's like oh what a great university i was like but what you guys don't realize is they put that in that email but the number one thing you lost which was more important than anything was fucking time you'd lost that time of compounding interest so i get i get it pat the university in the back tell them how great they are but they fucking cheat us on time 
because for that time of uncertainty, they weren't willing to stick with us. And in their respect, they did. I got a full salary during COVID. So, you know, obviously yeah. very respectful of that. But at the same time, they always like, here's, you know, here's the steak, but, we, you know, it's not cooked the right way because I forgot the time on it and all that stuff. So that kind of ticked me off. Um, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And I feel like, okay, I don't want this to turn into like a bash university athletics because <laughs> listen, we're maybe we're both jaded. Okay. But I will say if you're considering going to university athletics, there are things that you have to accept as the, the situation. So if you're a young coach who's looking to get into college athletics, it can be phenomenally fulfilling. It can be an incredible experience. I remember being courtside when Robert Morris University beat Kentucky at Robert Morris in the tournament and the fucking place exp- I'm have I have goosebumps thinking about that feeling right mm-hmm. now. You can't replicate that in the preface. You can't nope. do it. Nope. But I'll also say that there are a, a number of challenges and if you're willing to accept those challenges, great. You will have an incredible time and make some amazing relationships and you'll impact some kids in a really meaningful way. But I can also tell you that having moved into the private sector, you can find those wins elsewhere. They might not be the highest of highs that you're going to get in that one moment, but whether you're dealing with, you know, a CEO who you're trying to improve his blood work or you're working with a mom to help her lose weight so that she can positively impact her family or you're working with a youth a youth athlete who's trying to improve to make it to the next level of AAU, there are wins along the board and, and they feel just as good. Um, I'd love to chat with you about the idea of a performance trainer versus a fitness trainer. Because as, as you've transitioned, you were obviously high-performance athletes 24-7. Now you're stepping out of that role and you know, I had, I had like the total opposite end of the spectrum. I went from motherfucking kids in a weight room to trying to convince, you know, a 54 year old woman on disability that going outside wasn't going to kill her. Big, big difference. You step outside the world of high performance into the world of quote unquote fitness. The two are not the same. No, the two are not the same at all. And I think the best marketing product for a performance trainer is a fitness trainer because of how shitty their product is eventually the conversion is going to happen um and that's just the fact of the matter so there's a lot of people that are in the industry that obviously don't know shit about shit and i'm not going to sit here and say i'm the smartest guy in the room i was down in the room in virginia with you guys i was like these motherfuckers are smart right but that's what i want to learn if i want to be in the rooms with people that are going to challenge me and make me smarter so I think the fitness industry, which, you know, people are telling you, go on the treadmill, you know, do fasted cardio, you know, do anabolical fasting, whatever they want to do. Like, there's all these different things out there I'm just telling you to do. But what they're not really is like realizing is performance training is like training you for life. That's all I'm trying yeah. to do is train you for life, right? Like you said earlier, it's a push, a pull, a hinge, a squat, you know, upper back, core, some sort of variations of that. And then what I love to do, which I think not many people do when they go and train gen pop is I sprint a ton of my clients and I don't sprint them out the gate, but I do do sprint training. I do a lot of jumping. I do a lot of throwing. So those are the carryovers that I brought with me from the college setting that I think gets kind of thrown away when you see like, the fitness world. So I still consider myself and my clients athletes. I train everyone like an athlete because I think 
when we go back to some of the stuff that Cap talks about, I was like, who's your target demographic? In the beginning, I didn't know. I was saying just yes, everybody. But now I know who my target demographic is, right? It's the high performer. It is probably the former athlete that's competing at a high level, whether it's in the real world, as in their CEO position, executive position, whatever it is, you know, they're still having that level of competition with them. So I am looking in New York City for like, top-end hedge fund people, executive C-suite people that I want to work with because they understand the world of performance, how to make decisions. But their biggest pain point is probably time. So what I want to give mm-hmm. them is I want to build convenience that, hey, you don't need to think. You just need to come here. I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. So that's the biggest variation, I think, of fitness and performance is like, you actually got to have a fucking plan when it comes to performance. When it comes to fitness, you just throw shit at the wall. Sure, people are going to get healthier, but at the same time, the minute you turn that off, it's probably going to go all by the wayside. For performance, if I teach you foundational movements and you keep practicing over life, like you're probably like a kid like me who was in college and put, puts on you know 65 pounds of muscle or gets the physique or shape that you want to have because there's some sort of plan behind it. Well, I think just to circle back to something that you mentioned you were talking about working at Villanova and the the retirement fund, it was the compounding interest. And something Mm -hmm. that we see that, that I see a massive parallel between performance athletics and performance in life is that idea of compounding interest. That individual session doesn't really mean much, but when consistency over time, as opposed to these short-term bouts of intensity, you mentioned consistency over intensity, that's where the real progress is made. So you're talking about a hedge fund CEO. All he's doing is maximizing compounding interest over time with these reliably returnable investments. That's all training is. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that gets lost on some of these individuals who are high performance and high performance and may lack time is those same skills that have allowed them to be successful in the professional realm are the same skills that are going to allow them to be successful in their physical fitness. But not only that, being successful and applying those in fitness will carry forward into the professional realm. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. I mean, you hit the the nail on the head with that. I think there's so many parallels between the performance world. You say like the fitness side of it or like the, you know, health and wellness side of it. And the you know high-end performer when it comes to business that's why i love that market and that's why it's the market i want to be in going back to kind of what i said when i left villanova it's like i'm basically taking a very similar model applying it to a different tar- tar- target demographic the only thing that's really changed is the price point like i used to get paid you break it down per hour and again when we talk about college athletics you are there a lot of the time right. i'm not saying i work every hour of the day but i, I would do 12 14 hour days I still do 12, 14 hour days because I'm growing a business, but it's more towards my own business. Right. I can charge upwards of $250, $300 an hour in New York City to train for an hour where I was getting paid probably $18 an hour, $16 an hour, $15 an hour when I was working in college athletics. So like I'm running the same model, but I just have a different outcome. You also don't have to deal with the bullshit and you can pick and choose who you want to work with, which is always nice. 100%. Um, I think... I think dialing into, well, I mean, let's talk about that for a little bit. Like talk about price point. Like at the end of the day, you need to make a living. You need to define Mm -hmm. what making a living looks like for you. And each individual is different, even on my team. So I have myself, Olivia, and four other coaches. Each one of those other coaches has different goals, different aspirations, a different level of drive, right? Um, even, Even between myself and Olivia, we've had many conversations in terms of she doesn't want to do what I do. She just wants to coach people. 
She wants to coach. She wants to do a little bit of education stuff, but she doesn't want to be doing mentorship. She doesn't want to be on Zoom calls. She doesn't want to be doing, you know, big speaking engagements. And that's totally fine. Defining what it is that you like, if you say, I want to make 20 grand a month, or you mentioned $30,000 a month and you're charging $300 an hour. That's math. 30,000 yeah. divided by 300, it's 100 hours. So how do you make 100 hours over four weeks? Well, that's only 25 hours a week. Yep. That's really not crazy. So nope. how many clients do you need to work 25 hours a week? It could be five that go up, come five times a week. Right. It could be 10 that come to it, right? So however you yeah. break it down. But when we, when we look to it, the idea that you're probably going to have to work you know, with m more than 25 clients, there's going to be different price points. You're going to have different services. And when you right. realize that as you diversify your, your revenue streams or the different products that you're offering, you can actually make a lot more than $30,000 working less hours. Mm -hmm. um, something that you mentioned that you'd like to get into. And, and if you're comfortable speaking about it, I'd love to hear is getting into more of the corporate wellness type of, yep. uh, of, of work how did that idea come about and how do you kind of envision yourself getting into that? Yeah. So this came about, this is actually a funny story. So I met a girl at a fitness retreat. This was a true fitness retreat. So it was not a performance retreat, but it was with a bunch of high performers. So people who want more of life, they want to challenge themselves. They want to be successful or they're already successful and they just need that fitness piece to it. Um, so we actually, I met this girl, we started talking, we kind of collaborated on some things, but we had similar visions and values that we kind of aligned on. I told her I want to target big audiences, which at the time was a lot of like club teams. She mentioned going um, after the corporate wellness route. And I was like, damn, that's something I've kind of always teetered with. But I had lost a bunch of my connections because I was no longer in it. She came from the hedge funds world. So she understands the hedge fund world. She understands the pricing in the hedge fund world. She understands the money that's in the hedge fund world. So since probably May, her and I have been putting together a pitch deck. Um, to get in front of you know major corporations in New York City. So there's a handful that we're in collaboration with and talk with right now. But to put numbers on it, it's like we want to run a three-month um, hybrid approach that would be some in person, mostly online, using Coach Catalyst um, as our lifestyle trainer for uh, our clients. And in something like that, with the money that they have, we understand that we can charge anywhere from 150000 to 250000 for a three-month program. If you break down those numbers where I talked about, I want to make $30,000 a month. That makes a lot of sense. When you try and put 300 clients or hundred hours of working in a month, it's a little bit more challenging, right. right? So how can you scale your way up the system? And that's why I think my vision has changed as I've started my own business. It's like, I want to be a self-sustainable business. So it's me. And then it's like, I got a guy, Joe, who works underneath me and he's helped me with some things. I've had some discussions with you about like what price points look like for that. So I'm still figuring that piece out. It, it's starting to iron itself out very nicely, which is cool. But then Danielle and I meet and it's like, what's even bigger than this? It's like, let's go corporate. So now we're almost seeing it'll be a trickle down effect from corporate, which almost go into our own individual streams where she has nutrition, I do fitness. But again, we're targeting the target demographic that we want to go after, the high price point people. So like you said, in the beginning, there's going to be a ton of late work of getting everything set up, making sure it runs and uh, operationally, it's smooth. But when you take a step back, the hours worked and the hours put into it is like, 
it may be minimal because some other people are doing some lower force, but it's just gonna be more touch points and fine tuning uh, once the programs are kind of set and they're able to run. So that's kind of the vision I have and the way that I understand that I'm gonna be able to make $50,000 a month like that. And that's, I think that's having a bigger vision. Um, and now listen, a lot of people don't want to do that. They just want to coach their clients and that's totally okay too. It just matters of, you know, what truly lights your fire? What type of impact do you want to have? And something that I really resonated with you on was like, you're very driven on the actual impact that you can make on a person. And that has to do with relationships. Um, and knowing how that goes in a college weight room, being one-on-one -on -one with somebody, I'm wondering, have you run into any growing pains when it comes to transitioning that relationship building from in-person to online? No, I think I've done a decent job. I think I'm just new at it. I think that's the hardest piece. I'm still new at it, but, you know, leveraging something like Coach Cattles right now where I'm able to do a lot of the um, conversations online, whether it's audio, whether it's text, whether it's video, I think that gives more of like the human touch point than just being texting all the time. So I really do enjoy that piece of it. Um, but I, I know for a fact, it's very hard to replicate in-person coaching. So that's why when we go do corporate wellness, like I still want to coach. I know Cav mentioned it when we were down there. He's like, the one thing he never wants to stop doing is coaching. Same. I never want to stop coaching in person. It may be two clients, but I still want to have that piece. It's like riding a bike. You still got to do it every once in a while to make sure you still have it. So I still always want to be coaching, just make sure I'm getting the reps. But understanding is like the world is using a ton of technology these days. And why would you not leverage technology to coach and scale as many people as possible if you can? Yeah, that's that's something that, uh, that for me, I listen, I probably lose money training clients in person, but I'll always do it. And, mm -hmm. and the reason being is like, I want to keep my sword sharp. I want to have my, mm -hmm. you know, that coaching eye always sharp. doesn't matter how many videos you review in a day. If you can't be in front of somebody and diagnose something on the spot, be able to make that sudden change, practice those cues, that shit matters. The other thing is having those conversations, asking someone how their day is going. That's one of the, that's one of the funniest things that I've ever run into with coaches who've never actually coached in place. I say coaches, but I don't think they're very, they're coaches. They've never coached anyone in person. I ask, how many times have you ever asked a client how their day is going? That's like the number one most important yeah. question you can ask somebody to get information from this. How's your day? 100%. I think I asked it. I mean, back in my days of Villanova, I probably said that 250 times a day. Because oh, there's yeah. so many athletes that are in and out. You're just asking, like, how's your day? It's the easiest thing you said. How's your day going? And a lot of kids, you know what they're going to say. That's all right, right? But certain kids, they'll start to give you more. And on bad days, they'll give you more. On good days, they'll give you more. And when they start to give you more, that's when the conversation starts happening. You get it. You've been in a way with these kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some kids that never open up. And that's why it's great to have a staff of five coaches where they open up the one person more than the other. Um, but mm -hmm. I try and get the most out of people by just digging. like, And not in like a way that's, you know, too much, but I try and dig. Like, I was doing meh, like, okay, what's so bad? How can it be so bad? Yeah. You know, like let's make this the best hour of your day. You're in the weight room, let's have some fun, right? Uh, my boyfriend or girlfriend will go with me. It's like, all right, guess what? We've all been there. You know, we've all been through that. Obviously, it stinks. If you need anything, I'm here. And like you just kind of keep the conversation going with that person. And then you check in when they have a good day and just you know, ask the same kind of questions. But like you said, it's the number one touch point you can do. I'm a huge fan of doing it just on the street. When I'm walking, people's, you know, headers are down. They got their AirPods in X, Y, and Z. Like, I was like, hey, man, how's your day going? 
whatever. Some people don't answer. Some people answer. I just get rips of talking to people. Okay. So I actually gave homework to some of my mentees about this. You know how when you go to Starbucks and they ask you like, Mm -hmm. hey, how's your day going? Actually answering them and Mm -hmm. being excited when you answer them. It's one of the easiest ways that you can practice talking about your business. And it seems so silly, but like sometimes when I go to Starbucks, hey, how's your day going? My day's going great. Really having a great time coaching my clients. And they're like, oh, you're a coach. What do you coach? And then the conversation flows from there. And then I get a chance to actually practice what I'm doing. I do that anytime I'm I'm working on a new project. Mm -hmm. And just the idea of being excited about something gets someone else excited about it. And guess what? If they think it's stupid, it's probably stupid too. No doubt. And it's funny. I sat with a buddy about a month ago. We, we were chit-chatting and I was talking about pricing. And this is before I went down to uh, hang out with all you guys. We were talking about pricing. I was like, how does your pricing work? He's like, do my numbers all over the place? I, you know, I try and make sure for the most part, people's pricing the same, but it's all over the place. And I was like, how did you kind of like practice this stuff? He's like, you know what I did? He's like, I went to Starbucks and I just would stand in line and I would ask them for a free drink. And he's like, people would say no. He's like, all right. But he's like, then I would just keep driving to Starbucks. So in the same day, he's like, I drive to 20 Starbucks. But eventually you'll get a yes. And he's like, it's the same thing you ask for money. So like, uh, same, you know, case in point when you're like, uh, Lance was like, hey, double your prices. And you're like, fuck, no, I'm not going to double my prices. But then you did it. I don't know if you doubled them, but you, you increased uh, yeah, your prices. I, I you increased it. it significantly. You had a success rate. I did the same thing. I increased my prices. And how I did it was I increased my prices, but everyone that had been loyal to me, I gave them $50 off. And for them, they're yeah, like, the they same. appreciate that so much. But now going forward, they're going to pay the new price. So they won, but now I'm still getting my new price. So it's, it's kind of a fun game to ask. It's it's so uncomfortable. No one likes talking about money, um, but it is. You just need fucking reps. You need reps of getting people to say no to, um, which I think is a huge piece of something I struggle with a little bit. And I need to get more reps at it, but I'm a little bit young. That's not the right answer, but uh, I'm going to continue to practice it. And hopefully I eventually get more yeses and they come. I don't think, I don't think young is the right word. I think you're just fresh in it. Like yeah. the, the one, yeah. the one thing that, that really helps or helped me is I've been coaching online, you know, coming up on 18 years. I've had, wow. I've had online clients for a really long time. So I, you asked me like, can I deliver on my promises? Absolutely. I have the evidence to back it up. Whereas when you're just starting off trying to charge three, $400 a month, it doesn't really make sense internally to you because you you can't really validate it even to yourself. So how are you going to sell something you can't validate? Which uh-huh. makes total sense, right? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, for sure. I get it. But at some point I have to say, you know, especially when it came to me launching my mentorship program. When I first launched, launched the mentorship program, I charged $3,000. And for me to show, tell someone, hey, it's going to be $1,000 a month. I was like, oh my God. And now I've been doing it for almost two years. I have the ROI. I know for a fact I can make people money on their investment. So for me to charge five, six, seven thousand dollars right now, I can put that number out and I'm confident I can return the investment for you. The question now becomes, can I prove to you in the conversation that I can return the investment to you? But luckily enough for me, and this is something young coaches will learn, and I'm sure you're learning it very quickly, mm-hmm. your clients will sell will sell your coaching for you. Almost every sales call I get on now, whether it be for coaching, whether it be for mentorship, the person already knows they want to pay me. 
Right. It's almost a formality because my clients have referred them or they've, they've seen the evidence that of the work that I do. And they're like, I want that. Yep. And, and I think you're right. I am very fresh in this field. Like I've been online training for under six months, Yeah, you know, that's the creative piece of, but I want so much more. So that's the the eagerness to be like, I can charge this. I, I got to have a hundred clients online. It's like, Hey, slow your roll, take your time. Again, it's going to get there. You just need reps at it. Um, so yeah, it, it's an interesting piece and I do feel confident in the number that I do charge, which was something that when we kind of put that value stack together, made a lot of sense for me. Another thing that I've kind of done is I'm running a January challenge right now. I've got a handful of people in it, which has been pretty cool. And like, I had kind of like an epiphany. I'm like, how can I get more people for next month? And I might not get everyone to carry over, but my goal is to eventually have, you know, might take a, a dip next month and might bump up the month after that. But all I did was I do a weekly audit. So at the end of the week, I asked five questions. I was like, ah, five questions is pretty good. So it's like, how'd you eat? How'd you sleep? Uh, a win from the week, something you could be better at and something else. And then I was like, why don't I just add one more question? I was like, I just added a referral link. Hey, if you know somebody that would enjoy this program, give me their email. So now I'll start getting emails from people. And then, like you said, if someone's referring me to their email, I'll reach out. Hey, so-and-so give me your email. If you're interested in training, here's the link. I'd love to hop on a call right there. I don't need to generate leads. They're generating leads for me. Yep. Yep. And that's one thing, uh, even with social media stuff, if you want someone to read your caption, tell them to read your caption. If you want someone to click a link, tell them to click a link. If you want someone to like and share, tell them to like and share. These are things it's like, oh, it's that simple? Yes, it's that simple. And mm -hmm. whether you're talking about one of the easiest examples, actually, I was on a call with one of my mentees the other week. They're having some issues with compliance. And I was like, have you actually told your clients you need videos from them every session? Well, I mean, no. It was like, maybe you should email your clients and tell them all that, hey, I'd like videos from every single one of your sessions from now on. I guarantee you your compliance will go up. And I, I want you to make sure that in your onboarding documents, it says explicitly videos are to be sent after every training session. One week goes by, oh my God, everyone's sending me videos. It's like, no shit. Just suppose that sometimes. Simple as that. And, and one of the things I wanted to chat with you about, especially when it comes to the corporate wellness and like group coaching, one of the barriers that I feel as though people are going to run into, myself included, yeah, we're using this app, but one of the challenges with online coaching that we don't run into with in-person is compliance. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact someone pays for a session with me, nine times out of 10, they're going to show up and they're going to do the workout. But when it's in an online forum, you have that barrier of proximity, right? That, that barrier of proximity is very large. There's a screen in front of you. And unless you have a really good relationship with that person, which takes time to build, that compliance might be a problem. I'm wondering if in your, you know, in the short time of you doing this, have you started to troubleshoot that issue of engagement? Yeah. So I think in the, in the challenge we're doing right now, we've had some days that are buzzing a little bit more. So there's a, the community piece of the chat, which is kind of nice. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a smaller group. There's 16 or 15 people in the group, which is you know decent, but there's some days that are quiet. There's some days are not, but what I've done is, and no one needs to know, but it's like, now they're going to know, but I text some of the people who are in it behind the scenes, like, Hey, just pop something in the chat real quick, just to kind of get it go going. And that's kind of been fun because as soon as one person puts it, another person may be relate to it really quickly and kind of add something. So that's been fun. When it comes to corporate, um, one of our goals is potentially having like leadership groups. 
So mm. one of the pain points that we've heard from a company that we're kind of in discussion with is very much siloed pieces of the organization. So this, there's a sales, you know, piece of the organization, there's a accounts payable, but they don't blend. They talk because they email all the time, but they don't talk like talk. So we would like to maybe potentially have team leaders and understanding how they get broke up. Is it, do they get randomly distributed amongst, you know, just could be alphabetical, whatever. But now we, you know, eventually like have team leaders. So it's like any off season challenge in college sports, right? Like football, we always had like an off season challenge. Like, Hey, every, uh, the team's broken up to eight teams. Every uh, group has a team leader. The team leader is accountable for everyone. If X, Y, Z doesn't happen, we talk to the team leader. We don't talk to the rest of the team. So I thought that was a fun piece of if we have team leaders and those are so-called like the, you know, executives or leaders of the group, they are then, you know, responsible holding everyone else accountable in that group. So I think that can kind of create one, a leadership role for somebody who may not have a leadership role or is trying to get into a leadership role. Um, but also kind of can be fun to see like, what do they come up with that's creative that we could maybe, you know, steal and, and move with our next organization when we use it. It's actually funny you mentioned that because now I'm thinking back of like every off season workout program that we mm -hmm. ran with the team, we broke them up into the groups and then we assigned yep. team leads. And it's like, oh, you're literally just doing the same thing. 100%. Yeah, I'm stealing That's stuff so from college funny. athletics. <laughs> it's so, it's, dude, it's so true. I love it. I love it. Um, okay. The last thing that I wanted to ask you about, is, because it's fascinating to me, simply because I think it's fucking crazy. You're doing an Ironman. Yeah. When yeah. is the race? Race is July 19th, I believe. Why? Um, <laughs> there's really no distinct reason why but i can relate it to growing up my parents i always i told you i always liked working i always like playing sports it was like who i was and i remember my first piece of fitness equipment my parents ever bought me was an iron man setup and the iron man setup had a push-up piece to it. it was literally like one machine it had a pull-up a push-up a leg raise and a dip machine on it that was it it was all bodyweight stuff and i always thought it was like such a cool logo the iron man logo i was like i don't know whatever then I got into performance where I was like, I'll never do an Ironman. Like, that's just so far-fetched. Two years ago, I guess it was two and a half years ago, I bet my brother I could run a half, a half marathon. He's like, no fucking way. So I went up the next day, I ran a half marathon. Horrible. But I did it. Six months later, I ran a full marathon in Buffalo. Then my buddy and I did um, a triathlon, so a sprint-level triathlon, which was hard for me at the time because I'm not a good swimmer. Um, and then this past year in Geneva, New York, we did half Ironman. And when I did the half Ironman, like obviously there's so much that goes into it, but like you gotta learn to swim, you gotta know how to bike and running is obviously a piece of it. Running's fine for me. Biking. I got a bike from one of my clients. Um, so the bike was not fitted for me. I wore the wrong size shoes. I didn't have a biking outfit. So I was just very much just like throwing this thing out. I didn't even oh. understand like the air and the tires, what, whatever. It doesn't matter. I finished it. The swim piece was very difficult for me. Um, I did, it was in a lake, so it was cool, but it was my first time, second time being an open water swim pretty much. So now it's like, all right, you've done both of those. Why not keep just checking the box? So I like having something on my schedule. So as I'm obviously growing my business, it's very easy to get distracted in kind of the short term plays of like, you know, I just need one sale or I can go work with one client and make an extra $200. But what I ultimately want is I want that corporate wellness contract that's $250,000. So some sort of delayed gratification. When you're doing an Ironman, there's so much delayed gratification because, I mean, I'm probably doing close to 16 hours of training a week mm -hmm. um, between strength training and endurance training. Um, 
you know, this Saturday I'm going to do three hours on the bike and then a 50 minute run afterwards. It's just a long fucking day. Like, so four hours in, you know, everyone's just waking up like oh, I've, I've done all that work. Right. But the piece of delayed gratification, it keeps me very disciplined along the route of when I'm growing my business. So I think having something on the calendar for me um, allows me to stay very disciplined, allows me to kind of keep the blinders on and allows me to successfully build my business, successfully stay healthy. Um, and then, you know, go perform on race day. Like it's just race day is easy when it, when it comes to it, besides like the fueling and all that other shit, like you've done the work, the haze in the barn. So at that point, hopefully we've gotten our first corporate contract along, you know, under the belt. And it's like, Hey, now I just gotta go fuck around a race. Honestly, it's a lot of the same reason why I decided to do a bodybuilding show a year and a half ago. It's like, I knew that it was going to just be very, very, very hard. And I knew that it mm -hmm. was going to be something that I had to, I had to be accountable to. Um, and I have no, I have no issue with, you know, discipline or, or, you know, the routine or whatever. Like you told me to eat a shit sandwich every day and it would make me better. I'd do it. Um, but, but what I actually found was because everything was so regimented and scheduled out, add to the fact that I wasn't sleeping very much because dieting is something just for me, dieting crushes my sleep. So I had an mm -hmm. extra like three, four hours every day where I could work, man, the business exploded. I was, you know, making more money than I've ever made before. I was, you know, more fulfilled, more lit up. And I was like, okay, well, this is definitely something that I could carry forward and ended up carrying forward the routine as we move forward, as we moved on. But for me also, that self-actualization through the pursuit of a goal outside of business always feeds into business. So you mentioned the schedule. Like I book in my training as a meeting with myself mm -hmm. and that, that mm -hmm. makes sure that I don't miss it. Um, and that's something that a lot of young coaches, a lot of young entrepreneurs, honestly, I, it's something that I stand against is like, if you're going to coach people to be the best versions of themselves, you better damn well be trying to be the best version of yourself every day. Like you're a product of your product. So when you said, Hey, I'm going to do an Ironman, I was like, this guy fucking gets it. Yeah. I mean, just like you said, you got to put something challenging on the calendar every so often. And the same thing that comes down to is like, it has, it has an end date to it. So for me, I think it's 27 weeks out right now. Like I know that every day when I go into my training app, it shows me. And it's a piece of it that's fearful. It's like, if I don't do the work, I'll fail. And I'm not saying like failing is not the worst thing in the world, but like, I don't want to tell everyone, Hey, I'm doing an Ironman. It comes out to, it's like, no, I actually didn't do it. Like, why didn't you do it? It's like, but then I'm trying to work with the highest performance in the world. They're not going to relate to that. So it's like, no. this guy is willing to grow his own business. He's willing to sacrifice whatever amount of time it takes to get to that finish line. I'm not trying to be the number one Ironman in the world, but I'm trying to do something challenging um, that, you know, people can hopefully get behind and build a community behind it, but at the same time, understand that I'm willing to do something hard. Um, so when it's time for me to work with you and you say, Oh, it's hard. It's like, brother, I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I knew I wasn't going to be an IFBB pro. In fact, I knew I was definitely not going to be an IFBB pro. <laughs> um, but the fear of standing on stage in a, in a man thong with some body fat hanging off of it is like, I uh, don't really want to have that happen. Yeah. It's good to be uncomfortable too for you. You know, it's like, I don't love being in running shorts or biking out there. That's not who I am, but it's good to be uncomfortable for you to be on stage. Like everyone sees you as a person like that's probably so easy for you, but like, it's not easy for us, right? There's shit that's difficult for us too. So showing the fact that we're vulnerable and we're willing to kind of like peel back some layers to some people and show them like, Hey, we're doing some, you know, difficult stuff for ourselves too. Like I think makes people want to lean into you a little bit more. 
Love it. Um, so I do like to finish my podcast with a little bit of nonsense. Um, okay. So what is the craziest thing you've ever seen in a weight room? Craziest thing you've ever seen in a weight room? Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's the craziest thing, but scariest thing. I guess I'll, the two of them. Obviously, you know, kids trying to stack however many 45s they can on a squat bar until it would fall off. So that was a fun challenge that they were doing. Yeah, that was in a college weight room. I was like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, oh, we're trying to see how many weights can be on one side until it tips over. It's like a physics project. And I saw another kid. Weird how the dumbbells were set up at Villanova. We were like big on having the Vs up because everyone's all about like, you know, culture and the way the weight room looks. Oh, yeah, we were the same. But, yeah, but at the same time, like, you know, the kid wears the wrong color shorts to practice. But anyway, it doesn't matter. But the kid went to put his weight back. And he fucking took his whole fingernail off. And it was, I mean, it was kind of gross. And he's like looking at me. I'm like, bro, get that thing out of here. I mean, the fingernail is actually huge. It goes so deep down your finger. And his was just hanging off. And I was like, bro, it was the trainer. Yeah, kind of gross. So there's just two things that just kids being kids. Um, What is the hardest thing you've ever done in a weight room? Hmm. Uh, I was in a weight room, but I rode a marathon. It's actually wrote, my basement. You rode a marathon? Yeah, 42,000 meters, baby. Jesus. Who hurt you? No one. <laughs> I just, it's Some guy just broke the world record of it. I think it was two hours and 20 minutes he did it in, which is fucking insane. Yeah, it's brutal. Honestly, it's not... the the. It's obviously hard because the seat's uncomfortable, but your grip starts to go. It's just a challenge. They, there's guys that are in the CrossFit world now doing 24 hours straight of rowing. So you can take like small breaks, but you try and get as many meters as you can in 24 hours. Insane. I don't have enough time or money for that, so I'm not going to do that one, but yeah. that was probably the hardest thing I've done. Do you crack an egg on the corner of the pan or on a flat surface? I crack it on the corner of the bowl that I'm putting into. Okay. Oh, you're sophisticated. You mix them before yeah. you pour it in. Okay. okay. I do, yeah. Five people dead or alive at dinner. You plus five. Who are your five? Me plus five. I'm going to go Michael Jordan. It's going to be number one, the ultimate competitor. I'll probably go Kobe Bryant is number two. Number three. I'm very interested in history, so I'll either – George Washington and Benjamin Franklin would be one of the two. I'll actually take both of them. I think the okay. fact that Benjamin Franklin was running to love you for a while is very cool. Um, and number five, number five. This is just an interesting one right now. It's probably not a true number five, but I'm watching a documentary on a kid that did an Iron Man in Antarctica. And I would love to meet him for the simple fact that, like, you went to my fucking crazy. That motherfucker was on a bike for 30 hours. Oh, my God. 30 hours. Okay. Yeah, that's a good number five. It's a good number five. The last question I have for you, if you would like to see anyone on this podcast, who would it be? The caveat is you have to help me get them on the podcast. Anyone on the podcast? Have you had CJ Appenzeller on yet? No. So CJ is part of the crew. Um, he's an unbelievable performance coach. Um, does a lot of fighters, a lot of, a lot of guys in baseball um, out of South Jersey. 
He's also a professor at Rowan University. Oh, okay. Um, just an all-around good guy, also super smart. Um, and he'll let you know that he's smart, so I think he'd be a great one to have on. And uh, very easy to kind of uh, bridge that gap for you. Dude, I love it. Colin, thank you so much for joining me, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think, you know, our our values and, and thoughts align and the fact that, you know, you're getting out of the college world and into the private sector and into a position where you can impact people in a way that aligns with you, I think is very special. And I think that that message is going to resonate with a lot of people who might feel a little stuck in where they're at. And I also want to kind of highlight the fact that you can't be afraid to make hard choices. And, and, you know, the choice to leave a profession, you know, it might not be the best profession in the world, but it does carry with it a lot of prestige. And to be able to leave that and step into the, step into the unknown and trust yourself takes a lot of balls. So fucking good on you. Well, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you having me on. And, uh, you know, it's really actually cool for me to look back at a guy who I saw on stage two months ago. I mm-hmm. potentially want to reach out to them now on a podcast with and you know behind the scenes people don't know but that I'm learning from so I appreciate you for doing that and uh, kind of take me in your way it's my pleasure um, everyone thank you so much for joining us I'll have all the links to get a hold of Colin in the show notes and uh, thank you so much please make sure to like share subscribe and we'll catch you on the next one <laughs>